Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to the Grief and Rebirth podcast, whose mission is to educate, enlighten, and provide healing choices through interviews with grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and people who have been inspiring and uplifting stories to share. Irene Weinberg, the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth podcast. And tonight, we have a truly extraordinary guest, Mark Anthony, who is a world-renowned fourth-generation psychic medium who communicates with spirits. He is also an author and an attorney licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. Mark, welcome to your second interview for Grief and Rebirth podcast for this very special Grief and Rebirth event. I want to begin by chatting with you, Mark, about this shockwave we are all experiencing that is affecting our entire planet, the lessons we can learn from it, and the potentially positive things that can come out of it. And after our interview, you are going to offer some wonderful complimentary readings to our audience. So if any of you would like Mark to connect with someone for you, please leave your comments and questions in the chat section of this Zoom. Mark, let's begin with this question. Please tell us about your background and what inspired you to focus more on your spiritual gifts than your legal expertise. Well, getting where I am today certainly is a life journey, but which can be said of everybody. And the afterlife spirit communication and near-death experiences have been part of my existence from day one. And, and actually, in a sense, from before that, because uh, both of my parents were also mediums and my, uh, both of my parents also had near-death experiences. My father had two NDEs before I was born. When he was 16 years old, he was in a horrible car accident. And he said that the next thing he knew, he was floating above it and he saw his body on the ground and all these people running and they were pounding on his chest. And he said, wow, this is great. I'm floating, I feel so happy. And then he goes, I'm dead. And he goes, wow, this is great. And he said that he saw this light coming or he was going to this light and a voice filled his head and said, Earl, not now, this is not your time. And I'll never forget the way dad explained it. I heard him say, tell the story so many times. He goes, next thing I know, I'm back on my body and it hurt like hell, <laughs> you know? And, and then he, he went through the war and he was um, a, a Navy SEAL. And then when he was in his 20s, he was a U.S. diver. And actually, my father had dove with Jacques Cousteau, uh, the, the legendary inventor of the aqualung and uh, ocean, oceanographer and uh, marine biologist. And 
my dad was off the coast of New Jersey with the U.S. divers, and he was in 150 feet of water, Whoa. and all regulator jammed, and he started aspirating water, and he was drowning. And they said, there I was in the light again, and I, there was that feeling, and he said, and that same voice returned, not the voice you hear in your head, but that voice. And it said, Earl, it's still not your time. And he said, and I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden his regulator started working and he was able to clear his mask. Wow. Here's the thing, he was such an expert diver that it would have killed anybody else. And that's the one, I remember when I was uh, going for scuba lessons, dad said, no way, Mark. He said, there's no margin for error. So that's the one thing I haven't learned to do that, that I wanted to. So about 16 years after that experience, I came into the world, and but I wasn't breathing when I was born. And the doctor told my mother, they said, we're very sorry. But and my mom, like she just given birth to me, she goes, you work on him. You hold him upside down. You put your finger in his mouth. And so the doctors did this to humor her. And all of a sudden, I started coughing. And, and I wow. came back. So both mom and dad were able to see spirits. Dad was a Navy SEAL, and he was a NASA engineer. My mom was a commercial uh, illustrator and a fashion designer. So they didn't do a mediumship um, professionally by any stretch of the imagination. So around the age three and a half, I start seeing spirits. And, you know, dad was like, oh God, he's got it. And mom was like, oh God, he's got it. You know, so <laughs> what happened? And then um, I had a near-death experience when I was four years old, and, and I'm not going to go through all that now because I'm actually doing that a week from today uh, on the IANS uh, Zoom uh, ISGO, um, which if you want to find out about it, go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com. Long story short, I realized at a very young age that not everybody's parents were like mine and not everybody's family could see spirits. And I went to Catholic school and I thought, well, you know, hey, isn't that what we do? But they're, you know, they take a very uh, a narrow view about that, as do most religions, which is almost hypocritical because what I found is a lot of my friends are priests and we, we've had many discussions about this. They said, Mark, what do you think the saints were? And now when you look back through history, uh, a lot of religious spiritual leaders were what we now know as psychics and mediums. And so I was always drawn to the clergy and Irene, I'd actually considered going into the priesthood because, and that's not unusual for a medium because we're drawn to the spiritual. But for me, it was too confining. There are too many rules, regulations. There's too much of a narrow view of the afterlife and God and um, my mother and I, you know, even though, you know, we, we were Catholics, eating dinner, we talk about maybe St. Jude, Gandhi, Buddha, Krishna, all in the same sentence, because we always took an interfaith approach. So I decided that because the priesthood would have too many rules and regulations, I went to law school, which that's kind of like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Not that much of a difference. <laughs> Uh, that's certainly, uh, um, but what it is, I like helping people. I like the evidentiary aspect. I like the public speaking. I like the intellectual aspects of it. 
And I've tried over 300 jury trials. I've served as a prosecuting attorney for the state of Florida, you know, where, you know, the police arrest criminals and it would be my job to present the evidence to a jury to convict them. Then I switched over to criminal defense and complex civil litigation. But as I got older, my abilities began to intensify and intensify. And then when my mother passed, um, that, that turned everything around for me because what happened was about a week after she died, I was driving my car and I was overcome with these searing waves of, of grief. And I was feeling this tingly sensation. So I pulled over, I pulled over into this parking lot because I knew I wasn't able to drive. And there was this flash of light went off. Wow. And I turned to the passenger side and I saw the silhouette of my mother in this beautiful silver white light. And then a voice, her voice filled my head. And she said, Mark, you have been given the gift of mediumship so that you would not be crushed by grief. But now you must help those who are coping with theirs. And talk about a life changing, defining moment. And from that point on, everything in my life changed. And within a year of that, I wrote my book, Never Letting Go. And from that point on, I left the practice of law to do what I'm doing now, um, being a spiritual teacher uh, um, and author and practice mediumship to facilitate communication between people here in our world and the other side. So I'm giving you the the shortened version of it. I guess the cliff note version, but I want to ask you, Mark, can you tell, please, and I'm going to say again to all of our people, everyone here, and thank you for joining us. Please be sure to put your questions and requests for Mark in the chat section of the Zoom. And Mark, what, for those people here who would like to read your books, what would you like to tell them about each of your books and what they can learn from each of your uh -huh. books? Well, thank you. Um, both my books, Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity, are in several different languages. They're now both on audiobook, and you can find them on my website, evidenceofeternity.com. That'll link you to the Amazon sites. Plus, they're in Barnes and Noble, and I uh, understand they're even on walmart.com. So, but Never Letting Go is a guide on the journey through grief, and it is inspirational in that it brings forth messages of love and healing from the other side. It will teach you how to recognize when your loved ones and spirit are near. And it is healing in that it is a, a guide through the lifetime journey of grief. And it's recommended by hospices and grief counselors around the world. So when I was on the Never Letting Go tour, people kept asking me very profound questions about reincarnation the existence of God, the repercussions of suicide, do animals have souls? So what I started doing, Irene, is I began compiling a list of those questions, and that became the genesis for writing Evidence of Eternity, which bridges the gap between the spiritual and the scientific by explaining how afterlife communication or after-death communication, the afterlife itself, can be explained on the basis of quantum physics, um, hard science, human physiology, and faith and evidence. And so it bridges the gap between the two. It's been very well received. It's been endorsed by the top three NDE researchers in the United States. 
and also it was a Pulitzer Prize, which was very humbling. And I, was, I, I loved your book. I I, abs I think it's a, oh, an absolutely wonderful book. It's it's kind of like a reference book almost. It's a it's a marvelous guide. Well, people. what I've done with evidence of eternity. I've studied mediumship in, in England at the Arthur Finley College for the Advancement of Psychic Science. And, and that, <laughs> there's some funny stories there too. Arthur Finley was, um, well, he was a British aristocrat during the heyday of the British Empire. And he was very good friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Lady Doyle, both of whom were mediums. And we know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle because he wrote Sherlock Holmes. But they were very, very interested in mediumship. And so when Arthur Finley died, he left his estate to found the Arthur Finley College for the Advancement of Psychic Science. So I decided I needed to go there because it's sort of the, the Oxford of, of mediumship. So I fly to London, take a train to Stansted, get off the train, and I remember hailing down a taxi. And the taxi driver's like, so where are you going, mate? I said, Arthur Finley College. And he looks at me and goes, spook school. I go, spook <laughs> <laughs> So I get in this cab and we're going through the English countryside, beautiful. And all of a sudden I see a redwood forest. Arthur Finley brought over redwood saplings from California over a hundred years ago. So now you've got these 60, 70 foot tall redwood trees growing in England. And it was like, oh my gosh. And so when I drove up to, to uh, Arthur Finley College, I'm looking at it and it's sort of a cross between Hogwarts and Downton Abbey. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I get in and they said, we're going to sort everyone into their groups. And I'm like, this is kind of very Hogwartsy, you know? <laughs> and how do they know what group you belong to? Yeah, well, there was 40 people in the, in the program and I was the only American. And so when we went into the great room and then it went, the head instructor comes out and I'll never forget her. She, she's great, Val Williams. She's wearing these little wireframe glosses, very prominent English woman. And she, they don't call it a stage, it's a rostrum. So she steps into the rostrum and she looks at all of us and says, welcome to Hogwarts. And everybody starts laughing. She goes, all right, then spook school. And so what I love about the Brits is they have such a great sense of humor. And also the reason I went there is because the British believe, as I do, that evidential mediumship is key. In other words, when conducting a reading, you have to, me being the medium, has to bring forth verifiable facts to guarantee and to identify who the spirit is and things that I couldn't possibly know. In other words, getting away from these generalizations of, oh, your grandmother's here and she loves you. Well, that's all very fine, well, and good, but let's find out what did granny look like? What did she die from? What was her favorite song? What are shared memories between you and her? In other words, facts and evidence. Right. And being an attorney, certainly evidence is important to me, and being a medium, it is just as important. So now that we've gotten that background, and it's fascinating, and I'd love to hear more, can you tell us all about any insights you gained during the shockwave we are all experiencing together? Absolutely. Um, I was on tour of Texas in February. I was in Houston 
And then I flew back to Florida, we we're in Palm Beach, and that's when we started hearing about this pandemic. And I had a really bad feeling about this. And I told my manager, Rocky, I said, Rocky, there's no way we're going to be able to do the rest of the U.S. tour. Um, you know, this was the Mark Anthony 2020 Visionary Tour. And I said, something's going on here. And, and I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, but the best way I can describe what I was sensing and, and still do, it's kind of like in, in the original Star Wars movie when the Death Star blows up the planet Alderaan and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi says, oh, there's a great disruption in the force. And that's exactly what I feel. There's a great disruption in, on a planetary basis. And what's happening, Irene, is yes, this is terrible. This is a pandemic. Um, I'm aware of all the conspiracy theories. I've been on several shows. We can talk about those if you'd like. But whether this is a man-made virus, whether Bill Gates and the China and all there's this conspiracy, the fact is human history has been plagued by pandemics from day one. And every generation has its crisis, its dilemma. This is ours. And it's, it is presenting the world a lesson. And what we have to look at is as horrible as this is, and I'm not taking away from it for one second, the pain and the loss people are going through. This is not a hoax. This is real. I mean, if you want to believe in conspiracy theories, this is the United States. You have a right to believe what you want. But the fact is, this is real. On the other hand, the universe is one of balance. And there's a flip side to this. For the first time in human history, every scientist, medical expert, biologist in the world is working together, sharing their data. And there is a harmony among our scientists. This is unprecedented. This has never happened before. Typically, our scientists are working for nationalistic or company-driven objectives or to develop technology to blow each other up. But for the first time in human history, our intelligentsia, our brain trust, is working together. And not only that, not only nationally, but internationally. Internationally, worldwide, from, from South Korea to Scotland to Argentina to Australia. All over the to everywhere. Right, there's over 102 different vaccines under trial or, or either in trial or about to be. This has never happened before. Normally our scientists are figuring ways that we can blow each other up and kill each other. And this is no longer happening. And, and once again, this is unprecedented. And what's being presented to us is a lesson that we have been given this, this gift, this brain, and that if we use it, and if we let our scientists share information, and the thing about scientists, Irene, they like sharing information. They like working together. Scientists by nature aren't political. When you go back throughout history, you know, the German physicists um, prior to World War I liked working with the Americans and the British and the French and the Italians and the Russians to share information, not to destroy each other. It's politicians who want to do that. And so what the, we're being presented with is that if we let our scientists work together, not only can we cure this disease, we can cure other diseases. We can cure population issues. We can cure food production issues. And look what else is happening. There's another lesson being presented is for the first time in 500 years, dolphins have been spotted 
in the canals of Venice because the water's so clean. For the first time in decades, people in Mumbai, India can see a mountain range. For the first time in, in probably almost a, cent a century, people in Los Angeles realize the sky is blue. Our air is cleaner. Our water is cleaner. Animals are returning to national and state parks in areas that they never go because of human incursions. What we're being told is you can do something about this. And the way you can do it is through your technology, through your scientists, and through peace. What we're not being told is, oh, you all have to become the Republic of Kumbaya, join hands and sing. We can still be individuals, we can still have individual nation states, but if we stop trying to kill each other and start working together, we can make a difference and we can save humanity. And that is the disruption in the force. That's fantastic. What you're talking about is worldwide cooperation, not competition. Absolutely. You know, and the thing is, you know, we can still have free market economies and do all this, but it, it shows the destructive nature of fossil fuels. And I don't want to get all political and all that, but it's simply a fact. If you go to China or India or, and I've been in a lot of places in the third world where pollution control is considered to be an, um, an inhibitor to economic progress. I've been in uh, places in Eastern Europe and in Russia where the pollution was so bad, I'd blow my nose at night and blood and dirt would come out because it's so polluted. And this is all from fossil fuels. What can we learn from, from, from this? We can create alternative sources of energy, many of which already exist. We can get off fossil fuels, replace them, still have the industrial output, the technology and the electronics, but do it in a, with a form of energy, not nuclear, but either through solar, wind power, wave currents, and then there's um, other, other techniques which can be developed and, and have been developed that do not pollute and destroy the planet. I mean, when we think of slavery now, at one point, the Western economies were based on slavery, uh, the Europe and the United States. Today, we consider that insane because it is insane. At some point, provided we don't incinerate, incinerate ourselves in a nuclear war, our ancestors will say, can you believe the people in the 20th and 21st century actually used fossil fuels? Isn't that insane? And so we're at that tipping point right now. And this pandemic is, is bringing this to light, that we now have the technology to solve these problems. It makes total sense, but for those of us now, and I'm actually seeing how many jobs and different things could be created with this new technology and the potential, but right now that we are all contracting and struggling, I know you have a story about a woman who lived through the London Air Blitz, and you said that we can all learn a lot from her story. Can you share that with us, please, Mark? I can. Um, I, was, I was thinking, recently because I was asked to give a talk about, well, how do you cope with this? And suddenly I remembered this woman that I met when I was 16 years old and her name was Anita. And she was 
quite elderly at the time. And I know I've mentioned uh, Downton Abbey a couple of times, but looking back, she kind of reminds me of Maggie Smith, okay? Uh, she was thin and very proper and she was so English, I mean, to the fingertips. And I was, uh, I've always been a history buff. And so in polite conversation, we were chatting and it came up that she had lived through the London Air Blitz when she was, I think, 17, 18 years old. And I'm like, wow. I said, I was so excited. I said, tell me about this. That must have been amazing. And she goes, amazing? She goes, Mark, 1940 was a simply dreadful year. She said, France had been crushed under the heel of the Nazis within weeks. We heard on the BBC that a French general who surrendered said that Britain will have her neck wrung like a dead chicken in two weeks. And then the bombers came. And she said, and it wouldn't stop. Every night, every day for four months, we were bombed mercilessly. And I'm going, oh my God. I mean, all of a sudden, went from being something I read in a history book. And she said that I'll never get the sound out of my mind of the Stukas, the dive bombers. They used to make these, like, she, she imitated, like, sound. And she said the Germans actually put loudspeakers on the wings of the Stukas oh my to God. horrific sound. And here I am, the history kid, and I go, oh, I read about that. They did that because it scared people. She said it did more than that, Mark. It killed people. And, and then I realized, oh, my gosh. And she said that it went on and on, the bombing, day and night. And I said, I, I can't even fathom that. She said, well, one day I went to work and it wasn't there. And then one day I went home and it wasn't there. Our house took a direct hit. She said, thank goodness mom had been delayed at work, but she was crying watching our house smolder into ashes. My father was in the Royal Navy. We, we never knew from one day to the next if he were alive. And she said, and then we'd, we'd scurry for shelter in the tubes, subways, you Americans call them, huddling together. She said, not very English, being tactile with strangers, you know, she said, but we were in it together. But she said it was horrible, especially when the lights would go out because you never, you know, you're waiting in the dark for when it would end. She said, we never knew if we were going to be buried alive. And, and then she said, lofty. And I said, lofty? I go, what's lofty? She goes, he was a young man I was rather fond of. He was tall and thin. And because he was so tall, they called him lofty, you know, because his head was like in the loft. She goes, hell of a nice guy, lofty. They never found his body after his apartment, his flat was bombed. And she said, I lost so many friends. We didn't know how good we had it before the war when we just get together for a pint. I said, how did you survive? How did you do this? That's that's the question. She said, stiff upper lip. I go, what? She goes, stiff upper lip. She got all very English. She said, Mark, a crisis is no time to fall apart. I was terrified. We were all terrified, but we were in it together and we knew it would take a miracle to get through this but somehow we believed in it. And she said, and with Mr. Churchill on the wireless every night inspiring us, we knew we would survive. We knew there would be a miracle. There was, and we did. Wow. And I said, but you consider that a miracle? She said, Mark, the miracle was me discovering that inside of me was something I didn't know existed, a strength, an inner strength and a fortitude 
that made me realize no matter what, I had to put one foot in front of the other and trudge on. And so when people get depressed about what we're going through, and, and like I've said, I don't want to downplay the serious of this seriousness of this at all. We're not being asked to endure the London air blitz, nor are we being asked to storm the beaches of Normandy or Okinawa. We're being asked to stay home and watch Netflix. And yes, a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people don't know paycheck to paycheck. And I certainly have my opinions of what the government needs to be doing about that. But the thing is, those brave Londoners huddled together were people like you and me, Irene. They weren't superheroes. They, they weren't trained. You don't get training to learn how to go through something like that. And we didn't get training how to go through a pandemic. But the thing is, they found the courage. They found the inner strength. And we can too. And so when people say, well, I need proof to, to, to believe in miracles, the fact that you're alive, the fact that every day you draw breath is a miracle. So when you doubt that miracles exist, look in the mirror because you're the miracle. Speaking of miracles, have you got any words of comfort and guidance for people who are losing loved ones to the coronavirus and they cannot be with their loved ones as they're passing? Are they stepping up from the other side and filling in that role to fill that void? The, you know, that is probably one of the most painful things that's happening now because I've got two friends who died recently and in both cases, their wives couldn't be with them because both of them had some underlying health problems. And because of their inability to breathe, it was suspected that they may have had COVID. Neither one of them did, but their wives were not allowed to be there. And I was talking to actually one of them today. Uh, her name is Jan. She said, I couldn't even be there to hold my husband's hand when he was dying. He was in a hospital all by himself and his family couldn't be there. And then the funeral service doesn't happen. It ended up being a Zoom session uh, like this. This is really hard for people. These rituals of uh, funerals, of wakes, they're very important for people. It's, it's a way to get together and, and grieve as a group. It's very therapeutic. To not be able to be with someone that you love so much when they're dying is, is really a tragedy. But the words of wisdom, I can say, is that what we have to realize is that we are not these bodies. We are in these bodies. And I like to tell people to think of your soul as a drop of water. And so when you die, that drop of water leaves your brain and plunges into the eternal sea of the collective consciousness. And as soon as you're out of your body, you revert to an immortal living being because the soul preexisted the body, comes into the body, then lives on afterwards. We know this from quantum physics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. So, no and, and, and also, we tend to get very focused on the death and dying of our loved ones. Totally understandable, totally justifiable. But that's just a doorway that our loved ones had to go through to get to this elevated level of consciousness. They're fine. We're the ones that are, that are coping with the stress. But the thing is, 
the reason spirits reach out to us and they're doing very much so now because they, they know our pain is because they want to bring forth messages of love, healing and resolution. And that's what's happening. And something like this tonight is such a reassurance to people that we do go on. So even if you cannot be with your loved one at that moment of death, your loved one is not alone. Their loved ones on the other side, greet them, take them over, whatever. And they come, they're, they're coming back to let us know that they're okay, which is, which is wonderful. Um, do you have a message because grief and rebirth is so dedicated to um, healing and we present healers and mediums and people to help just like with this. This is such a healing moment for all of us. What is your message about the importance of healing, Mark? especially now that we're required to stay at home and they have the time to identify and attend to some of our own healing needs. Well, first off, there's many resources available for healing and for healers. And Irene, I have to refer people to your website, IreneWeinberg.com, uh, because um, for, for all the, the listeners, the viewers, Irene's website gives a list of people that do healing in the spiritual, the psychological, the energetic sense, which we need right now. The, the difficult part about, about the social distancing is depression is up, apparently alcoholism is up, and people are under a lot of stress. Um, I'm gonna almost verge on politics for a moment. We're reopening too soon in my opinion. Uh, I live in Florida and cases are on the rise, but our governor is, wants to reopen. And, and um, I, the feeling I get, not just as, as uh, somebody who is studying the situation, but also as a psychic, is this is a catastrophic mistake. And I hope to, to goodness that uh, the treatments and the vaccines are available sooner rather than later because we're going to need them. That being said, and I'm not here to criticize politicians because we'd be on air till tomorrow morning. Um, but the thing is, we have to social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, you protect yourselves. Okay, we saw the devastation of the healthcare workers in New York City. Oh my God, these people, see, we're in a war right now. We are in a war. You know, when we look at the London Air Blitz, that was a different kind of war. This is our war. We're fighting a disease. It's an insidious enemy. And unlike human beings, it doesn't discriminate. It'll kill anybody. Now they're finding that children die from, from, from blood clots that it forms. It seems to attack different age groups differently. It's 10 times more uh, uh, contagious than the flu and 10 times more lethal. So prepare yourself. So, you know, we all are going to have to go to the grocery store, go to the bank and do some of these necessities of life. But if history has taught us anything, is that eventually pandemics come to an end. The question is, what toll is it going to take? That's why I think we're opening too soon. On the other hand, I can understand the frustration of people that, that are, that are, are out of work. Um, if we look back at the pandemic of 1917, 1918, killed 25 million Americans. It killed more people than died in World War I. If you look at the plague of 1665 that swept through Europe, the good thing that came out of that was Sir, um, Sir Isaac Newton quarantined himself 
And while in isolation, he invented calculus, the laws of gravity, and the laws of optics. So I always tell people, use your time wisely. There's another thing about this too. You can get depressed about it, or we can take advantage of our miraculous technology. It can even come down to pick up a phone, call an elderly friend or relative. One of the beautiful things I've seen is when I go for a walk, because I'm a walker, I love to walk, and I'm seeing parents spending time with their children, riding bikes. I see people holding hands and walking. I'm seeing people spending that quality time that you usually don't see. And, you know, Isaac Newton, you don't have to create the calculus or the laws of uh, gravity, but maybe this is the time to do those things that you've never had time to do. How many of, how many of you out there said, well, one day I'm going to write a book? Why not now? Or you're talking about your painful childhood. How about talking to somebody now and taking that time and trying to work that through for yourself? Absolutely. That's a relief. Get rid of the suffering. Mark, everyone wants to get a hold of you now. So is it evidenceofeternity.com? Is that where they can get a hold of you? Yes, just like my book, evidenceofeternity.com and Irene. Um, you know, I'll be doing some readings here, but uh, telephone readings are just as accurate as in-person readings because spirits move at the speed of light. And I explain all that in Evidence of Eternity. But um, I want to extend uh, an, an offer for uh, the Grief and Rebirth podcast audience that if you go to my website and you uh, click on book a, a telephone reading with Mark, fill out the form. And if you mention Irene Weinberg and or Grief and Rebirth podcast, uh, my assistant who schedules the readings will extend to you a reduced fee for the session. Uh, and because the thing is, we all have to do our part during COVID and that's what I'm doing. But you have to mention Irene Weinberg and or Grief and Rebirth podcast because I want to make this available for people who are coming to this site. Because this is a healing site. And, you know, what I do is healing. Irene, what you do is healing. And the other people that you recommend, we're all healers in, in different ways. That's right. We don't want to see people continue to suffer. We, we know that there are answers for them. Um, this has been absolutely wonderful, Mark. Thank you. Mm -hmm.